Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Our guest today is Frank Lance. Frank's a game designer with a focus on exploring emerging technology to create new kinds of gameplay. He's the founding chair of the NYU Game Center and the co-founder of Area Code Games, which was acquired by Zynga in 2011. And he's the co-founder of Everybody House Games and the creator of the game Universal Paperclips. He's working on a book, which will be published by MIT Press in October 23, called The Beauty of Games. Welcome, Frank. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's really great. to. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk to you. You know, I get a fair number of over-the-transom emails for people that want to be on the Jim Rod Show. And I will confess, you know, a good percentage of them are nuts and what have you. And then another percentage of them are people I'm not all that interested in talking about their topic. But now and then a good one comes through. And when my producer forwarded Frank's inquiry letter along, I said, hell yeah. Turns out Frank is one of the top players of my Network Wars game. And, you know, and then I, of course, I quickly looked him up and I also find out he's the dude at the game center of NYU. I go, hell yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Jim Rutt show. And that's how I found out about Network Wars. And yeah, I genuinely love it. It's a great game. Yeah, so we are going to talk mostly about Network Wars today, and we're going to nerd out big time. I know a fair number of our listeners listen to Network Wars. I play Network Wars. I'm not listening to it. In fact, everybody turns the sound off pretty yeah. quick. <laughs> yeah, so you can listen to podcasts. Exactly. Yeah. So if anyone wants to play Network Wars, go to networkwars.com or search Network Wars, two words, at the Apple App Store on Google Play. It's a mobile game. takes about 30 seconds to learn and at least a few weeks to get pretty good at. It's a kind of hard game. A typical game only lasts four minutes or thereabouts. And it only costs 99 cents with no in-game promotions. It's a nice, clean game. <laughs> so t- tell me about your initial reaction. I mean, as a real game pro, I'm really interested to, what did you think when you downloaded it? Okay, well, I'm going to be honest with you, Jim. When I first booted the game up and took a look at it, it just, it looks too simple to be good. At first you think, you know, wow, this is too simple. Where, where's, the, where's the clever hook? It's a very straightforward game. It's a little strategy game. It's played as people know, but if, the, if, if you haven't played it yet, I'll just quickly describe it. It's a little turn-based strategy game that, that's played on a procedurally generated network of connected nodes. And you, you are playing against four AI opponents and you are choosing a node and then attacking a neighboring node. And it's just a simple kind of mathematical operation the, the, based on how many, uh, how, what, what the strength of the node is, you will kind of basically flip a coin for every point of strength. And then if you overpower the neighboring node, then you take it over. And then every turn you're generating more strength based on the size of your connected your largest connected group. And, and so you, you, I looked at it and I played around with it a little bit and I thought, well, you know, this is, there's really nothing clever or surprising. There's no hook, you know, 
But it turns out you don't always need a, a surprising hook or a clever kind of unexpected mechanic. If you take a, a, a solid idea and you execute it really cleanly, you can end up with something truly great. And I, and I think that that is, I think that's what you've got with network boards. It, it, it turns out to be a really fun game. It's really interesting. It's, it's really enjoyable to kind of go deep with it. I've been playing it a lot. And yeah, it's, it's what I would call a kind of minimalist game. And I think that it is, it's kind of surprising these days to, to come across something like this that really embraces the minimalism and goes deep with it and produces something great that way. Well, you caught it exactly because, you know, I've been, as I was mentioning in the pregame discussion, I've been a gamer since I was 10 years old when I started playing Avalon Hill tabletop games. And, you know, I went through the Atari phase and the Apple phase and the Commodore phase and the PC phase and some of the console phases. So I've always been into games, but I have found many games just it takes, they're too complicated. They're no longer elegant. There's no elegance. Like checkers and chess are kind of elegant games. You know, Go is a super elegant game. And so when I uh, decided for, I don't care quite why I decided, but I decided I was going to take my, try my hand at creating an elegant game. And I sort of thought about the genres of games. And I said, I'm going to take the game of risk and that family of risk type games and see if I can eliminate absolutely everything that's not necessary. And, you know, I went through five or six design iterations and each one had less complexity, you know, complicatedness, I should say, not the complexity. As a Santa Fe Institute complexitorian, I don't want to use complexity wrong, but a a complicatedness until after a couple of weeks, I got down to a Windows prototype of what's basically the current game. And I said, I don't think I can make it any simpler. I did eliminate one last thing, which was an option on how the reinforcements came in. Uh, There's, you know, logically a couple of different ways you could have automated reinforcements. And I had two in the original prototype. And then I said, nope, I'm just going to go with one. And what was the, uh, just out of curiosity, what was the other one? Because currently you just get reinforcements on your, along your border and they're kind of randomly distributed evenly. But like, so what was the other alternative? Well, it's quite obvious if you're looking for minimalism. The other minimalist one is randomly across all the armies in the largest connected network. Got it. So it would have been along all this stuff. Yeah. So again, this is an example of something that I think is one of the strengths of the game. I love the reinforcement rule. And I think it, it's, a, it's a great example of, of, of your design process, this, this idea of, of just getting rid of everything you can and, and kind of boiling it down to its, to its essence. And, and it really worked. And again, it's, it's just unusual. It's an unusual approach. I would say that we live in an era where the dominant game design aesthetic is almost the opposite of that, right? It's a, it's a kind of, I think of it as Pokemon is, is a good touchstone for this because a lot of the, the beauty of Pokemon is in the intentional, intentionally complicated nature of the materials. Like of all these different Pokemon, all these, each one has its own set of stats and affinities and strengths and weaknesses. And, and a lot of the pleasure of Pokemon is kind of memorizing this, this vast quantity of data. Uh, League of Legends is an extremely good game, extremely popular uh, contemporary game, very similar in its aesthetic approach. If you, try, if you sat down to try to learn League of Legends, you, you almost can't. Like, it's not the kind of game you can sit down and learn. It's the kind of game you have to kind of just imbibe as part of your generational experience. You know, you just got to grow up. And, and, and so, but, but there, is a, there is this other approach of thinking, 
what is the, the simplest possible expression of an idea or a mechanic. And in some ways, that it really is, it goes to the heart of what games are about. Because this, this idea that you can find a surprising amount of, of complex and interesting behavior in a very simple set of, of, of rules and materials, that's really the magic of, of games. Yep. That was indeed my intent. It quite literally was my intent. And then I, from that point, I had to then tune the game because as a gamer, gamer yourself, you know, it's yeah. an iterative process to get a good game. Yeah. And so the two other things I played with were, first one was play balance, basically. And one of the other things that annoyed me in kind of the mobile game world is most of them were way too easy. You know, the, you know, the quick play, easy play phone games five years ago. You could generally play them 20 times and master them more or less or figure out that they were too ridiculous to ever master. Yeah. And so I chose to tune Network Wars to be pretty hard, but you could see yourself growing in knowledge. Yeah. But, and you'll never be able to, you know, win 100% of the time. Uh, at least nobody ever has. I and I would predict that nobody ever will win every game in a thousand plus. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we can talk about that, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that the maximum win rate is cl close to like 76, maybe, maybe 77 or 78, possibly. I don't think it's anywhere near 100. Yeah, we'll talk about the stats yeah, a little bit, yeah. you're but you're pretty close. And so I, uh, they're interesting, the things that I tuned, the size and aspect ratio of the network makes turns out to make a significant difference with this particular set of gameplay. And I came up with six by seven. And then the other one is the ratio of nodes to links, turns out. and Or we'll put it this way, the algorithm that generates the links and the nodes with a essentially an affinity and probability of establishing a link on a node, et cetera. So call it the density of the network approximately and you tune both of those things and they change actually the win-loss rate because I, I wrote some AIs that could play in simulation so I'd run 10,000 games and see what the uh, you know the average win rate of an AI playing the human was and I tweak things and run another batch job until I got to I targeted 80 percent as I said that a genius player should be able to win 80%, but it turns out you're approximately right in the data that uh, such a paragon has not yet appeared. Though one guy did for a short period of time. Let me see if I can find my data here. No, actually, I don't have that, that handy. But there are people who have won over 80% for their whole career, but their careers have been short, like 130 games. Yeah, I like mean, that. look, I can, I can, I can win 80% over, over any arbitrarily long run of games. But when you're talking about the true long run, yeah. I think we're, yeah, I think we're, we're getting close we're, we're asymptotically approaching the, the maximum possible. Yeah, so um, I'll give you your, your score here, right? Yeah. 74.9% win-loss average over 7,948 games. And that makes you 14th on the all-time hit parade of all players. But most of those are people who've played a few hundred times. I, in the category of a thousand plays or more, you're up near the top. There's two other people that are above both you and I who have played more than 5,000 times. And one of them, mysterious, I just have a user number for him, Mr. X, he's played 11,864 times. It's a lot. He has a yeah. win-loss record of 75.6. He's okay. actually, I would say he's the best of the many plays. And here's the other two thing. The other thing that he, two things that are quite impressive about him beats both you and I. The, one of the statistics that I just actually ran for the first time yesterday. I've been saying I'm going to do this forever, but I finally got around to doing it 
yesterday is the longest maximum win run because you know again this is a short game takes four to five minutes to play and you get in a groove and you win 20 in a row right you feel great and you know truthfully i was never quite sure what my maximum win run rate was but i now know well anyway mr x his maximum win run is 35 which is really amazing wow that's pretty good and also the best he ever did in a hundred rolling game, hundred one of the figures of merit that I use when I play. I'm I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm always looking at how I'm doing in the last hundred games because that seems to be a statistic that's stable enough to tell me where I'm at. And also when my focus starts to degrade, you can see it starting to go down. And yeah. his best hundred might be the highest anybody ever did is ninety two. Wow, that's pretty good. That's yeah. 92, 92. Yeah, now, that, Frank. That is, that is impressive. Yeah. So Mr. X is probably a bit better than you, and you're a bit better than I am. Your longest win run is 33, which is pretty damn impressive. That's not bad. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, so you've won 33 games in a row at least once. Yeah. And your max 100 was 91, so only one less than Mr. X. Okay. Right. Uh, so that's right. pretty good. And so, and that ranks you 14th. The, the win-loss rate, 14th of all players, but that includes a bunch with relatively small – all yeah, players – We all agree we're going to throw those out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So of the big play – of the of the Mr. Biggs, you're number, you're number two or number three. There's another guy yeah. who we could – the statistics aren't quite canonical. So, you, But anyway, you're number two right, or so number 70, three. So 75.6. Okay, that's what I've got to beat if I want to get to the number one spot. You want to be Mr. X. And then yeah. uh, myself, as the inventor who knows how it works, <laughs> just slightly worse than Frank, which is – which you know, that's interesting. And I – I've played 9,021 times versus Frank's 7,948 times. So that's fairly similar. I ranked 18th on the total depth chart. My win rate is 74.1 versus Frank's 74.9. However, my max win run is only 25. I was kind of surprised and somewhat disappointed while Frank's was 33. And my max 100 was 85, exactly where I predicted it would be. Because I had a sense that I get to 74, 84, and I try to get it up, and it usually doesn't go. And I, my guess, and I never remembered ever being higher than 84, but I said, I'll bet there was a time I wasn't paying attention when I made 85. And yeah. it turns out I did. But you, yours at 91 is quite a bit more impressive. So, you know, your claim to be the, the top, the network worst player in the world is damn close. You know, you're in the top three for sure and a bit better than me. Well, this is scary. I mean, being number two is, is worse because now I have a reason to keep going <laughs> until, <laughs> until I beat Mr. X. But I mean, a lot, it's, it's really interesting to look at these stats and try to figure out which of them are meaningful. I think m- most games of Network Wars are kind of decided in the, in the first setup. You look at a board and in many cases, there is no path to victory. You just, you, 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 there's certain starting conditions where you just, there's no amount, no, no, no expert play is going to get you to, to win those games. Those are just, uh, those are just losses. And it's not quite true. It's not quite is true. That, is that not true? Come on. That's got to be true. Well, I have yet to find a game that if I play it 20 times, I can't beat it. Because now one of the things that annoys all my players is I don't allow replays of games, right? Right. And I have a, a theory on why I, I, I do that. Also, something else, which not too many people know, a few people do, is every player plays the same sequence of games. Uh-huh. Because I originally did this as a cognitive science experiment to see how humans learn. 
And okay. so everybody plays the same sequence. So when, you know, when someone gets to 7,948, they'll have played the exact same games you had. So, That's so and, good. I'm so, that is so good. I'm really glad you did it that way. Well, here's, an, here's something that's even scarier in terms of make it comparable. The dice rolls that happen under the skin all, uh, always use the same random number generator for each game. So if there is a bias in the dice rolls, you know, a short run bias in the dice rolls at the game level, every player gets the same rolls of the dice, but because they play the game differently, the impact of those same dice rolls are different. The or It's the order of the dice rolls wow. are the same. So again, it, it increases the comparability across players. So we can actually look at a given game and see how good you are in a given game and know that everything else was equal. The Sure, like they do, like they do in Bridge, like uh, duplicate. Exactly, bridge. Du- duplicate, yeah. very similar to, uh, to duplicate Bridge. So let me then go on to the another design decision. Love to give your feedback as Mister okay. Game. The combat results are kind of like Risk, but they're not the same as Risk. In the in large N, lots of trials. A bigger stack will beat a smaller stack on average over, you know, a thousand tries or a hundred tries. But unlike risk, there's a lot more variance in the outcome. And this drives people crazy, including myself. I've seen an 11 lose to a two, which would never happen in risk. But in my game, an 11 happened to two is unusual, but not out of the ordinary. So think about the statistical distribution I used as being more fat tailed than your typical dice roll type yeah. type outcome. And some people think that's a great feature and some people it drives nuts. The, the very high stochasticity in the combat results. It works for me. Because that is a combination that I like a lot. I'm a poker player, Jim. I don't know if you if you play a lot of poker, but I used to. Okay, so that that combination of high skill and high variance is like catnip for me. I just love it. <laughs> I just there's something that just that just tickles my fancy about something where where you can do where you're rewarded for doing a very deep model and for and for doing a very deep analysis and for calculating and yet at the same time you're in the wildness of super high variance and you just have to embrace it and you have to in all of your models and all of your calculations have to include it and account for it to me that is a great place to be i love my brain just loves being in that space so I'm a big fan. Now, is it accurate to the way I model it in my head is that I see the two nodes, uh, the, so the node that's attacking and the node that is defending. I see them as almost like a stack of 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 units where each unit they flip a coin against each other, and, and as soon as one wins, the other unit is eliminated. Is that? And then you just keep doing that down the whole stack until there's zero. Uh, left in one of the stacks or zero left in the defender stack. And then you move the last unit or you move one, uh, you move all of the units leaving one behind. Uh, is that is that accurate? Is that the right way to model? Very close. It's not quite a fair coin flip, but it's very, very, very close. Cause that was another little twisty parameter. Ooh, what, what type of uh, coin flip is it? Slightly weighted. It's very towards slightly. The, towards the attacker. Towards the attacker by a tiny bit. You know, it's like, and is there any difference in the roles between the human and the no, and the bots? No, no. no. The one okay. thing that I will seems say, like there are, but but I knew there probably wasn't yeah, because yeah, I know I, how my brain works. But I'm like, because because you notice the ones that are super unfair, 
against you, you don't notice the ones that are super unfair in your favor. I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I actually went back and looked at the code because I was convinced that I must have implemented it to be more stochastic for the human than for the AIs. And nope, it uses the oh, exact good. same function call. Good. I'm, no I'm, happy, I'm, I'm happy that you did that. And I think that was the right decision. You know, it's funny in game design, there is a tendency to bend randomness toward, in favor of the player and in favor of the player's instincts. Even someone who, someone like Sid Meier, who is a, obviously a genius game designer, the creator of C the Civilization series. And the really cool Gettysburg game, which is yeah, also I mean, really good. Br brilliant designer and, and, and someone who, yeah, very influential. He's the person who's, who said, a game is a series of interesting choices, right? So he's very famous and, and influential. But when he talks about uh, randomness, he often, yeah, he says, look, I mean, you want to make it feel right to the player. True randomness doesn't feel right because what the player has in their, in their mental model is a kind of randomness that's more smooth, it's more evenly distributed, it's not as spiky as real randomness. And so we make it so that after... After you've had a couple of, you know, inconvenient roles, we just make sure that you get the role that you're looking for. And it and it drives me crazy because the, I think the part of the, the beauty of games is that they force you to wrap your head around the reality of, uh, of, of, a, of, a, of a surprising truth. You know, the, 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 that, that's something that, that the world doesn't work the way you think it does. And so having to kind of update your models and and realize that that randomness uh, is spiky and has these these character you know like that's what happens in poker like poker doesn't accommodate for you and your preconceptions and your biases it just is what it is and that is a part of its, its spiky beauty you know and now it's interesting now let's t tie it back to your to your comment about unwinnable scenarios and my okay. assertion that as yeah. far as i i mean i will say i haven't tried every scenario. There might be one that are just totally unbeatable, but I do have a backdoor for myself that allows me to replay scenarios. Yeah. And I've sometimes had to play 20, 25 times, but the way you win is not by having a better strategy. The way you win is by being lucky, right? right. And so I, from my poker days, and I actually, this is actually quoted in a book by Michael Mobison, who's a fairly famous Wall Street guy. He happened to hear me give a talk once on it, which is as a systematic strategy for life. Learn from poker is when you're behind, raise the variance, right? Yes. You know, because when if you get one of those scenarios that suck, if you play straightforward, the equivalent of being a rock in Texas Hold'em, you will lose, right? Uh, the only way you're going to win is get wild. And wild plus lucky, but if you don't, but if you're not wild, if you play conservatively or straight, exactly balance, the amount of of luck that you will need is so much that you're not likely to get it. But if you do crazy shit and you get lucky two or three times, then you change the situation and 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 change the whole scenario. And so you know, even the one in particular, which is one of the early scenarios that everybody complains about and says is unwinnable, I actually have beaten it by that approach, by taking a really radical, you know, a strategic approach and getting lucky. Okay. So you were saying that theoretically it's possible to win any starting setup because of this wide variance. So because of this wide variance, when you're in a, a, a setup that looks unwinnable, you can just take um, some crazy swings and eventually, and then since you can restart it over and over again, eventually 
you'll flip, you know, 10 heads in a row and, and you'll beat it that way. Yep. But, but that's different. That's different from saying each of these. Okay. I see what you're saying. So technically in that sense, they're, they're winnable. And in some universe, some lucky person might end up, you know, at the, at the, at the far end of that, uh, that distribution and end up uh, winning a bunch like that. But in the universe that we live in, that's not going to happen. And well, so- interesting, interestingly, this famously difficult early scenario, uh, a couple of people have won it. You know, just n- noobs who are just playing for the first time, and they yeah. just happen. You know, out of twenty five thousand, one, uh, two or three have beaten it. And uh, and when I play with one of my low rent AIs that plays the human, it's not very smart. If I play, I think it's a hundred thousand times, it'll beat it once or twice. Yeah. So again, it's it's winnable, but it's it's just very uh, very 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 difficult. There's another way you there's another way you could think about this, which is because you are using the same seed to generate all of the all of the actions in the game right if you knew that you would have a complete picture of exactly what's going to happen as the result of every encounter and you could and in that scenario you would be back in a universe where there are some setups that you you can't win yes right yes, cor- you can win them if you're allowed to like skip ahead until you get a, a, a that that extremely lucky stretch of of outcomes, and then use that in the right way to win the scenario. But given the fact that we all have to work our way through that same kind of predetermined set of uh, of, of dice rolls, um, you're going to go through stretches where you can't win. Not, actually, not quite true. Actually, oh. think think about it hard because uh, it just makes it more difficult, right? Because you don't you're playing blinds man's bluff or find yeah. the needle in the haystack, but the the needle is still there. Uh, it's just you have no you have no principled way to find the needle, but it's still right. there. So so it's just so a very you, so even if you exposed that, you say, look, I'm going to show you the the next. I'm going to show you all of the the roles in the in the order that you're going to get them. It'd be a lot easier. It'd be a it'd be a hell of a lot easier if you could see that. But but I do not let the AI see that. And I don't let the humans see that. Right. But in that scenario, you think that I could use that information to sort of like find a winning path from every. Oh, it'd make it a lot easier. Yeah, think about it from a complex a calculation complexity. Yeah, it's certainly advantageous. Clearly good for you to have that. I just think in some cases you're still going to look and say, okay, there is no correct solu- correct path to winning from this uh, startup. And, and I would say that is possible. You know, I, yeah. I like that idea, and I would. I, I think I may just get psyched to try that and see if I can write an agent that does use that information and see if it can boost its win rate to a re- ridiculous degree, and, even on the I worst will, scenarios. I will pre-register my prediction, which is that it that it won't that there won't be such an agent. So, and we can have a little friendly bet on it, but I think that's a great question. Okay. All right. Let's, let's, let's bet a bottle of whiskey on Perfect. in the first hundred thousand games in the sequence. Your proposition is there's at least one that can't be beat by an automaton that has look ahead on all the dice rolls. Perfect. I love that. Yeah. I love my side of this bet and I'm, I can't wait to, to see what whiskey you're going to get for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is one. Uh, now I'll get you something good. I hope you're a single malt man. A single malt or bourbon, your choice, right? Oh, I, either one is it's fine. I trust you. Okay. All right. Well, now let's. Uh, we've talked a fair bit about some of the design decisions that went into it, and you and you actually have sniffed them out. The fact that it's a, a, a coin flip rather than a dice roll, very yeah. few people have figured that out. But if you play it enough, and if you have the right kind of mind, it does sort of become obvious after a while. Yeah, and it's funny. It's just like if you want to get good at a game, it just you you end up sort of discovering what what is happening under the hood. And that's part of the pleasure I think of trying to get good at a game is that it just rewards you for for thinking and 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 having a kind of accurate vision for for what you're you're interacting with. Yeah, but you were correct, actually. Very, it's an almost perfectly fair coin, but not quite. Just tiny. Yeah. Just because again, because yeah. I wanted to tune that my guesstimate of where the win of maximum win loss of eighty yeah. percent. Now, next thing after I wrote this, and I think maybe it was just after I had it out on test flight with a few users of the mobile version. I think I had like fifty users of the mobile version after I had I had thirteen users of the Windows version when I was just prototyping it. I. I played it a bunch, an embarrassingly large amount, and fortunately, it does not it does not show up in my current number of nine thousand twenty one. It was probably another three or four thousand. And one of the things I did during that process is I wrote down fifty heuristics that I discovered. And in fact, part of the reason I did this originally was to start to understand the idea of heuristic induction from a cognitive science perspective, Uh, something I've been saying for a long time in the other work I do in the artificial general intelligence area, that I I believe we will find that at least the low ends of artificial general intelligence are going to be in part driven by the ability to induce heuristics, rules of thumb. You know, the world is very, very complicated. It's uh, it's actually complex, right? And in the land of complexity, it turns out you can't solve very much in closed mathematical form. And you even can't get reliable and stable results from quantitative modeling or even agent-based simulations in high complexity. But rules of thumb is how we get through life. You know, see a lion, run, right? You know, <laughs> things of that sort. And so as I played the game, I wrote down, I still have the, the, the paper someplace. I couldn't find it, unfortunately. I, I think it's at my other office. I wanted to review it today, but it was really fun to record these heuristics. And I and and they, they were written down in a way that if I had everybody's complete gameplay, I could actually see what heuristics they're using, or at least on a probabilistic basis. Did you have the sense as you were learning the game that you were gradually uncovering a stack of heuristics? Yeah, I I totally did. And I think that one of the marks of of a great strategy game is exactly this feeling of climbing the ladder of heuristics. There's there's a great book about games by Richard Garfield and Scaphalias. Richard Garfield, the creator of Magic the Gathering, uh, wrote a book called Characteristics of Games. And he uses this phrase, the ladder of heuristics. And I think there's one of the deep pleasures of, of, of getting trying to get good at a game is this feeling of of incorporating these rules of thumb into your thinking, almost like cognitive tools. At first, you encounter them, they're explicit. At first, you think of them as like, okay, this is a little rule I need to follow and it's going to help me win. And then eventually, it almost becomes second nature. You don't even think about that because now you're, you're at a higher level 
and you're encountering a new rule of thumb, which again, at first you make explicit, you're thinking, okay, I should always do this in this situation. Oh, here's one of the situations. I recognize it. Now let me apply this little rule. And you're doing it very consciously and explicitly. But then eventually, again, it kind of gets incorporated into your thinking and it becomes second nature. And now you're at an even higher level and you're developing a new heuristic at, at a more strategic kind of more abstract layer. And you just keep doing this, right? And you keep building this, this kind of deeper and, and deeper understanding into your model of the game. And, and I think that it is, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's part of what I love so much about games because it's a way of, of kind of seeing your brain operate. Like you normally, like you live inside your brain and it's not, <laughs> it's not, you can't see it. You know, it, it, it's like the fish who, for whom water is invisible. You know, what's water? It's like, what's a brain? What's a mind? What is problem solving? Because we exist inside of problem solving, right? And it, it, it's it's invisible to us because we, in a sense, we are comprised, uh, you know, we were comprised by problem solving. and And yet when you play a game, it's like you're able to see your own mind at work and see how it encounters the world, see how it bumps up against a problem and, and starts to, to analyze it and, and, and then develops a rule of thumb to deal with it and then incorporates that into its kind of natural, organic, kind of like low-level processing and then kind of like reframes the problem at a higher level and keeps going and, and games are great at that. They're like little laboratories where we get to kind of take our brains out and, and examine them and see them and see them operate. And I think a truly good game really has a rich ladder of these things. Whereas like, a, like if you think about any problem you encounter, it can fail to be a good game by either being trivial and right away you see an optimal solution and then that solution just works all the time. Or it can be intractable in the sense that there really is no, there is no good rule of thumb for for improving your your results except to solve the whole thing, right? And so those are the two ways that that problems can fail to be interesting. But a really interesting problem is one that is kind of semi-tractable in the sense that you can get better results by applying these, these rules of thumb. And you can do that in a continuous manner. So you're not just encountering this cliff where you have to solve the whole thing. You're actually able to kind of get better and better by, by taking these, what I think of, I think of a heuristic as almost like a shortcut through search space. Like my, my basic meta rule of thumb is if you can search, you should. So like if you're in the end game of chess, right? There's no point in applying a heuristic. Like if you if you know there's a mate somewhere on the board, just search until you see the mate, right? Don't like you should not be doing a thing where it's like, "Oh, I'm going to control the center yeah, yeah, or yeah, I'm yeah. going to develop my pieces or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a good exchange." No, just find the mate. If there's a mate, just find it, right? So if you can search, you should search. But most of the time, you can't search because you don't have an infinite amount of computational resources to throw at a problem. So when you can't search, that's when you are applying heuristics. And what heuristics are doing is they're really showing you these paths that are almost like shortcuts through search space. They're, they're ways of, of, I don't know, they're like tunnels. They're like, you know, like tunneling, uh, like hyperdimensional tunnels through search space. 
Yeah, if we want to talk about it in complexity science terms, I like to think of them as dimensional reductions, right? If yeah, the, that's exactly right. Yeah. If the real space is like really high dimensional, we can't actually process formally, you know, a 20,000 dimensional space, but we can kind of do some thinking in a four dimensional space. And so yeah. uh, heuristics is one way of thinking about heuristics, at least are a set of settings in a low dimensional space, which are tractable to human reason. And humans aren't that smart, right? You know, there you go. You know, we can be beat by a dollar 95 calculator, right? You know, when it comes <laughs> to adding numbers up. And as it turns out, our phone can beat us at chess and large language models will soon be able to write better than anybody less than the very, very best of us. And, yeah. and so we have to we have to have these heuristics because we're not that smart. We can only operate in a certain level of complicatedness and and inducing those. But that's also going to be true of computers because the world is just amazingly complicated and complex. Yeah. Uh, the ability to somehow find these heuristics is still a human superpower. Yeah, it, that's that's exactly right. Like even in a domain where it is completely deterministic and the, the problem is in a sense – Games exist to create problems that are the opposite of wicked problems, right? Because in a game, the problem is well-defined, it's incredibly simple, it's clearly stated, uh, and we're going to reduce as much of the of the, the kind of fuzzy, complicated, noisiness of the world. We're going to isolate a very simple problem and, 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 and create a toy universe in which this problem is clearly stated and the outcome of success is clearly defined. The criteria is right in front of you. And even then, you find yourself in a thing that is almost infinitely rich and complex and surprising, where we still have to use all of these all of our creativity, right? We still have to improvise and, we, and be creative and come up with ideas. Uh, and that's one of the, the, the wonderful things uh, uh, about, uh, about games is they show how deeply rich and complex the world is, even when you isolate a single corner of it. Yeah, and as you pointed out, your initial reaction to Network Wars is, damn, this is like really, really simple. Were you surprised at how much emergent complexity there turned out to be? I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of expected there to be more there than than look than it looked like at the because I knew you and I knew the kinds of topics you're interested in. I knew your background, and uh, and I just kind of trusted uh, that there was going to be uh, some meat on the bone. You know what I mean? But I will say also say that like even even I who have a, a taste for this kind of stuff, I, I have a taste for simple games, minimalist games. You know, yeah, even I was a little bit surprised. And I think it's partly because, I don't know, in game design, we tend to have a reliance on, on cleverness, you know, that, that part of uh, when you encounter a new game, even if you're uh, a kind of a game design snob that has a very, you know, developed kind of literacy about games and, and genres and stuff like that, you're often looking for the novelty in the mechanics. Do you know Rainer Kinesia? The board no. game designer? No. Yes, he's a famous board game designer. He, he's one of the kind of the people who ha ushered in this new era of Euro style board games that. Like Settlers of Catalan. Yeah, exactly. Like the, you know, and Euro games uh, can be very simple, but they often have this kind of interesting twist where a mechanic is unusual. Rainer Kinesia is especially good at this kind of thing where, you know, you're saying, oh, okay, well, your score is the result of the difference between your two closest neighbors or something like that, you know, some little strange surprising hook. 
And so, you know, I'm often kind of looking for that. Okay, what's going on here that is going to, you know, introduce this kind of novel surprising thing? But instead, I think, I think in your case, I think in the case of uh, of Network Wars, it really is the it's the graph itself, it's the play, it's the play field itself. Like what you have done, you took this tradition of connection games, right? There's this existing tradition. Go is in is in this tradition. There are also you know games like Nash or Hex you know, why Mudcrack, why all of these games, Twixt is an example of, you know, um, games that involve understanding the kind of network topology of a, of a graph and like building, you know, building a game out of that. And I would say, yeah, Network Wars is, is definitely in this tradition. There are computer versions of this. Uh, Slay is a is an old PC game that is, uh, I think there are mobile versions of that too. Where again, it's kind of a minimalist version of of a, of a traditional strategy game on a map with interesting connections, like a risk-like map. But I think what you did by really going deep on the graph itself, on the the play field being procedurally generated, and so the connections are always different, the topology is always different. I think that is really the heart of of the game. And but I I will say that for me, there's one thing in particular that makes network wars was was kind of the the biggest and and most surprising insight that that I got out of this game and it has to do with the ai so the the fact that you had this minimalist approach and you reduced everything means that the opponents in the game are also incredibly simple so right? you made these very simple models they what they 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 don't really take a strategic approach. Instead, they have very simple deterministic behavior. And because you did it that way, you as a as the human player, you that that ends up being in some ways the heart of the game, right? The heart of the game is this kind of bot diplomacy where you are manipulating the opponents against each other in order to uh, to to your own advantage, right? Because you are able to model them very accurately because you know exactly, basically, the algorithm that determines their behavior. And as a result, you can often be vastly outnumbered. But because you can model them and they can't model you, you're able to direct their behavior. And, and so it's like you're this tiny – I've had games where I'm, a, I'm on a single node and there are these two vast armies surrounding me. but it, because I can, uh, I, I know that they're going to fight each other. I'm able to to like sneak in and then eventually at the right moment to take over the entire map. It's there's nothing more fun. It's the absolute. It's the peak fun of 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 network wars is to do this. Yeah, I had one of those about a month ago, and I sent it to some of my network war friends. I had one node. I will say the node had eleven strength points on it, and I had an intuition that this was winnable. And so I started taking screenshots. I had a, yeah. a series of five screenshots and sent them to my network wars buddies. Yeah. And and indeed, I did win exactly the way you did. You know, I, I saw that there was probably going to evolve a situation where I could break out, make the guys fight each other, and then isolate one of them, kill him, and then come yeah. back and kill the other guy. And yeah. indeed, I mean, it worked out. So this, so realizing this, really led me to an epiphany. Uh, the epiphany that I had was that. The bots in Network Wars aren't opponents at all. They're really just rules. They are in the game the same way that gravity is in Tetris, 
right? You don't think of gravity as an opponent. You, know, you don't think of gravity as, as, as a player that you're playing against in Tetris. It's just a rule of the game. It's just one of the, the material facts about the game is that pieces behave in this way because gravity causes them to go down. Well, the opponents in Network Wars are just like that, right? They are part of the game. And, and, and this is, this was like, wow, this is a new way for me. Like, I I guess in some ways this is just, this is true of all games that have deterministic AIs in them, but because of the way that you implemented these, these AIs so simply in a way that made them kind of transparent to the player, this was the first time I'd really thought of this fact, right? That in a sense, any deterministic AI can be thought of not as an opponent, it's not that you and the AIs are both playing this game. It's that really you're playing the game and the AIs are inside the game. They're just pieces in the game, right? They're just rules of the game. And, and then it led me to like another thought, which was, well, this is kind of true of any AI, right? Any, any AI is like this, right? In, in a sense. And, and then ultimately it led me to realize, well, in a way I'm like this. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> My behavior in the game is produced by something, right? It is the result of something. You have you have a strategy that determines your moves. Now you can't see that strategy clearly, you know, but but in a sense, someone could, right? Someone could look at you and see that you yourself are also like this. Like in a sense, there there is, you know, at first once you realize this about the AIs in in network wars, it feels great because it feels like it's like you're a sphere visiting flatland, right? You can see a dimension along a dimension that they can't see because they're embedded inside of it. Like you can see them from above and they can't see you. And it's just this amazing feeling. But then you kind of realize, well, I'm I'm like that myself, right? Like I I have this advantage over the the AIs and network wars, but but in a sense, I'm also embedded in whatever, you know, deterministic space that I'm in that is that is causing me, you know, whatever strategy I'm applying to determine my actions within the game. And in a sense, all there is really is the game. <laughs> there, there are neither opponents nor players. There is just the game. It that, was, I like that. That's an interesting. Yeah, it was a, it was a lovely epiphany. It really, it really changed my perspective, um, not just on, on your game, but on, on games in general. And, and it kind of, uh, yeah, blew my mind a little bit. Interesting. Now, I did made that decision because I actually have four or five other AIs that I tested, and this one is definitely the stupidest, right, of the ones yeah. I've used. But I had the epiphany of, of what I was trying to accomplish, of course, after the fact, right? As often some of our best insights are after the fact. Yeah. We just stumble into it, and I realized what I'd created. I'd created the equivalent of swarming behavior in complexity science, where it turns out you can model fish schools and bird swarms with remarkably simple algorithms. I mean, ridiculously simple, where all the elements are running the same algorithm and they produce what looks like highly intelligent, coordinated behavior, but they're running equivalent of 10 lines of code, right? And and one of the things people are always... uh, they're often right. Often takes people a long time to realize how dumb the agents are because they do things that seem smart, like they fill up their end of the space, and then they build a wall, and then they build up, and then they break through. You know, kind of the same things that humans do, but they do it through a swarm-like behavior rather than a uh, deeply. I mean, there's no analysis at all. They're just amazingly shallow, but nonetheless, the behavior looks 
smarter than it actually is in the same way that bird flocks and schools of fish are smarter than they are. And their wars between the bots also just seem a little smarter than you'd think once you realize what the agents are actually like. Yeah. The, one of the things that, that, that happens often is that you'll look at, you'll look at a board and you'll be like, okay, well, I can tell what's going to happen next turn because this guy's going to go here and this guy's going to go there and I'm safe because he'll go over here. And then the bots manage to like do a thing that where they get in their own way. You know what I mean? Where they, where they like, they, they, they kind of like cut themselves off. And as a result, they end up attacking you in a way you didn't expect because oh, they, ha- they cut off their own best move. And it's just so aggravating. Yeah, the, the famous one that happens to me. So, well, yeah, the most likely thing they're going to do this will leave me safe because there's yeah. twos next to my twos. Therefore, right, they right. can attack me. But one of them ends up attacking the two and turning it into a zero. And then somebody else attacks the zero and then attacks me. And I go, God <laughs> damn it. Or, uh, or occasionally a bot will just get this incredible run. I, we call, I call it the Prussian style or they're just unstoppable. They just plow through far more intermediate little ones than you would ever think that was possible. And then yeah, they'd I, hammer my critical but weak position and then I'm screwed, right? Yeah, I, I hate when that happens. You know, it's that funny, happens, you, it does. <laughs> when you talk about heuristics, I think one of the first heuristics that someone develops in Network Wars is the, the idea that you, you sometimes want to skip your first turn. Like knowing whether to skip your first turn, I would say is almost like the first, like the first step of getting good at network wars. And actually, uh, it's the reversal of the anti-pattern that most people start with, which they start with trying to expand as fast as they can on the first turn, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, there are times that is correct, but oh, not absolutely. very often. And yeah. in fact, in the next, if I put out next version, one of the things I'm going to capture statistically is how often do people not move at all on the first turn? And my guess, the good players, it's 40 or 50% of the time. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. Yeah. On the other hand, every once in a while, you see a first move, which is just devastating and you take it and you do all kinds of crazy shit. But yeah. uh, and sometimes you just move one piece out of the way to let two guys get into, I'll hold your coat. Let these two guys fight. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And those things, but probably 40, 50 percent of the time, the best place to do nothing. But knowing when to do nothing and when to do something is what moves you from being kind of a low 60s percent player up to a high 60s percent player, yeah. I suspect. Yeah. Another thing that happens as you get better at the game is starting to think about it almost in thermodynamic terms. Like you're looking at pressure building up and you're like, Ooh, I really need to puncture this to like, let this, this fluid out of here so it can flow over here. And you're, you're really looking at these, these things in terms of flows. It's all like, you know, this chunky mathematical stuff, but it really does feel like, Ooh, I need to kind of like yeah, I need to deflate this thing over here so that this thing can expand into it and thinking, yeah, thinking holistically like that. Yeah, let me give you another kind of chemistry ant analogy that I sometimes use, which is fluid dynamics and viscosity. Sometimes the opponents have lots of big chunky pieces behind the yeah. lines, right? You go, that's going to be hard to break through, shit. But other times, even though they have lots of nodes they're really kind of thin on the ground, so their viscosity is low, and you can puncture through, and other times you can't. And then and then the, kind of the meta-meta-meta game, this is kind of up in the 40th of the 50th heuristics, is say, how is it likely the situation will change over the next two or three turns with respect to this viscosity? Will the density go down because the guys are fighting each other, or will it go up because these guys have 
kind of reinforced positions where the reinforcements will make them stronger and stronger. And yeah. that, that and that's, where, to my mind, almost like the Zen. You're now getting really high up near the top of the stack. Some of us talk about the need to be both mentally tight and loose at the same time, very much like in poker, right? Yeah. You have to know when to wait and you have to know when to go. And there, yeah. and early on, there are people who are biased towards going too often, but then they're often in their intermediate trajectory of learning seem to wait too long. And so having the ability to analyze the situation, know when to wait and when to go. Uh, yeah. does, does that resonate with you and your game plan? Yeah, it totally does. It's, it's every turn of network wars involves like modeling what you think is going to happen on the on the next turn and on and and looking ahead, you know, a, a few turns uh, to kind of predict what the, the likely outcomes are, and then thinking, okay, what what can I do to improve my position given this this prediction of of what's going to happen, and then knowing how much risk I need to take. So going back to this idea, you, you know, that you, that you had of of knowing where you are how safe you are right so if things look bad yeah yeah when you're yeah yeah don't yeah don't lose a, don't lose a winning position but if you right. have a losing position raise the variance right exactly so if, if you think oh things are not looking great then that's when you need to start taking some risks i need to get lucky i need to give myself an opportunity to get lucky right so then so then you're like finding situations where you're maximizing your chances of getting lucky in both directions, both getting lucky as an aggressor and then maybe getting lucky on the following turn when the bots are moving, getting lucky by having them be unlucky. And knowing when to put yourself in those situations, I think, is is the real edge that you get in, as a long-term player. Yeah, now you're getting up into probably, you know, the upper 40s of the heuristics yeah. that, you know, once you start to see those things, then your game, then your gameplay moves up another couple of points. Yeah, I think early, that like the earliest heuristics are understanding this idea of when you want to skip a turn, also understanding the strength of position uh, versus raw power, right? Like you want to be in a corner, you want to be on an edge, you don't want to be in between two, two opponents. And being in a corner, um, and there's also this idea of surface area, right? How much of your uh, territory is, is bordering uh, other people's territory? Because the, the, the less, the, the smaller that, you know, the smaller that ratio, the more kind of power you're going to have in, in the nodes that you, that you're building up uh, reinforcements in. And so like understanding the strength of that and knowing when to trade off um, size of territory for position, I think is a, one of the earlier uh, heuristics that's really important. Yep, absolutely. And you know, some of that, as I was learning the game, I kind of adapted from risk. When when I play risk, I tend to be a grab Australia or South America early kind of guy, right? Yeah. Because they have the least surface area, and yeah. then you you can build up your power at the borders more rapidly than than your opponents who have a lot. You know, what's the worst one? I think is is Europe, maybe or or Asia uh, has just so many, too many entry points, even yeah. though they're yeah. bigger and stronger. The ratio of Area inside to area outside turns out to be important. And it's often, I find it, it's an interesting play on seemingly difficult scenarios when you fight your way through, get some luck on your side, and grab a peninsula that you had no business grabbing, for yeah. instance. Right? It's so satisfying. Um, <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the things I, I think about sometimes is how the game would change if it were played between five human opponents. Ah, um, yeah. And I think... I think what would what you would find is that in some ways 
I think it would be interesting to do. I think it would be a totally different game. I think, I think ultimately the game would become much more a game about uh, kingmaking. Uh, it would be a, it would be a, a, a game with lots of politics. It, it would be a game in which you're, you're always incentivized to, to not attack right? Because when you attack, you're going to make yourself weaker and the person you attack weaker. And so you're really making, you know, three of your opponents stronger. So everyone's kind of disincentivized to attack and you're going to have these um, strange kind of p- political and, and, and psychological and social norms that emerge over the course of many games, right? There's, there's, a, there's a wonderful game, uh, another mobile game called Galcon, uh, which I played, which is- How do you spell that? G-A-L-C-O-N. And Galcon is similar in some ways. It also comes from this heritage of connection games. It is it is uh, real-time instead of turn-based. And you have these planets and you're sending ships back and forth. But it's the same kind of like minimalist abstract strategy game with, with reinforcements. And but in Galcon, it's 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 human opponents. And and again, it, it kind of like it quickly becomes this this very elaborate game of diplomatic negotiations. It is really a king-making game. And the only reason it works is because it has short game sessions. I'm a huge fan of short sessions. I think that's one of the reasons poker works. Like poker would not work if every hand took half an hour. Poker works because despite the fact that you, you know, can just get unlucky, every hand takes, you know, a couple of minutes. And so you can play thousands of them. And over the course of many hands, the overall shape of the game emerges. And that's what's really beautiful. And, and a game like Galcon is, is the same thing. It would not work if you had to invest half an hour or 45 minutes in a game. And then it, the, the results were just determined by, you know, someone decided to attack someone else. And that was what determined the outcome. But because the games are extremely short, and it's um, and they're iterated. It, you know, it's like the prisoner's dilemma, right? The prisoner's dilemma as a one-off, very, very different from the iterated prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, exactly. We know what the answer is for one-off. It turns out there is no stable position strategy for yeah. iterating. Yeah, and and that's that's the that's the beauty of of the prisoner's dilemma. It's when you have these long tournaments where the strategies involve not just what you're doing in the moment, but how you respond to other strategies over the course of of an iterated uh, session. So. Now, in the case of, yeah, I don't, I don't know what would happen in, in Network Wars. I think part of its beauty is the dumb AIs as they exist, because it, it leads to like this deeper understanding of, of like, yeah, the, the, the kind of epiphany that I had about, about AI in general and about, about games and, and kind of being embedded in them, kind of knowing where you are in the metagame stack. You know what I mean? That's the secret. It's not just outplaying your opponent. It's like, where where am I relative to, to my opponent in terms of my actions being determined by by the rules of the game and you know even a kind of optimal response to the rules of the game versus having a perspective that is outside the game and able to to see it. That's why Magnus Carlsen is still the best chess player on the planet, even though he's chosen not to 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 play chess in a way. <laughs> like the fact that Magnus Carlsen got bored of chess. Is part is a demonstration of his genius, right? Like the ability to get bored at a game is the the precious thing that we have that is ultimately the most valuable thing that we bring to a game. Yeah, it's not just the ability to optimize within the game, but the ability to like 
pull back and see ourselves in the game optimizing and just choose not to. <laughs> you know? yeah, I'd rather play this other game, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, that is true. And he is does seem to be at that point. Now let, let me get to another point which many of us have thought about. And truthfully, I could do the analysis and see, but I haven't yet. I'd love to get your subjective sense. Okay. All of us players who've played a bunch, you know, get to these places where we're winning more than 80% of the uh, games, right? And we sometimes will can keep there for a few hundred games, but inevitably we crash, right? Yeah. And I'll often crash down to the high 60s. This is, again, for the last 100 games, which is my figure yep. of merit. And so totally. the question is, is it a run of bad luck, i.e. a long sequence of hard scenarios or does our attention break in some sense, or do we do we get sucked into anti patterns on some of the heuristics? What, what's your thought on that? I'm sure. Have you, first, I'll ask: Have you had that sense that okay, oh. I can maintain the plus eighty for a while, but inevitably I break? Yeah. No. I, I when you are when things are going well, you feel like, oh my god, I've cracked this game wide open. There's no there's no way I'll ever lose again. And then. <laughs> You can go on a huge downswing and and just like what happened and you and and you're just it's so uh, it's so sobering <laughs> to be all of a sudden you're just losing over and over again and and you're just you you feel like almost like you're you're you've you've been kicked out of an airplane or something and okay so my answer to your question is it's bad luck like I'm not saying that that I don't I'm I'm also not susceptible to bad play or or tilt or you know psychological uh you know going on a on a streak where I'm I'm not focused or not paying attention but I think that this is just the reality of the game it, like poker you know the, the the long run is is bigger than you think the the terrain of the of the curve that you're on even if that curve is going up it is. It has bigger spikes and valleys than than you expect. You expect it to be smooth, and it really isn't. And you're going to go on a stretch of a bunch of games that you lose that you really you played fine. So I I, I don't think that those are the result of uh, the of having a cold hand. I think they're just a result of randomness. You know, my guess is it's both, but I don't know what the weights are between the two. Because I will notice sometimes that I get, if I start playing too automatically and too too quickly, that seems to be correlated with these declines, right? Where I get into this sort of Zen state where it's just flow. Well, it turns out flow isn't quite as good as flow-ishness plus some analysis, something like that. I agree, but here, here's the thing, Jim. As soon as I lose one or two games, I'm pretty focused because I care a lot about my long-term stats. I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to go on the Jim Rudd show. He's going to look at my stats. He's going to talk about <laughs> it. I'm really incentivized to make them as good as they could be. And so I, I start to pay attention and I don't think I'm, yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm playing worse or making suboptimal uh, decisions during those times. I really think that, that I'm on a downswing and look, you played poker. You know what that's like. If you, Poker is another, oh, yeah. uh, thing where, you know, you can play for, you can play for a year and think, oh, I, I'm just, I'm never going to lose at this game, right? I have a huge edge. I'm playing in these soft games, whatever. And then you can just go on a huge run, a terrible, terrible downswing. And, and the reality is that that can happen to you, even if you're playing optimally. And it's one of the, one of the beauties of, of 
of poker is that you can never really know. Like you look at your your play and you're like, well, wait a minute. Like I played right, but I got I lost anyway. It happens all the time. And of course, that's that's why people love Texas Hold'em because you can see all the mechanics, but only after the fact, right? Yeah, I actually sat at a – talk about the overlays, you know, the soft tables. Yeah. For 10 years, I lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I was at the Santa Fe Institute. And nice. the casinos, the Indian casinos in northern New Mexico are – like shooting fish in a barrel. These yeah. are the most ridiculously loose tables ever. And on my book, I'd only play three or four times because a year because it embarrassed me to take money from these, you know, uh, Hispanic business guys. They were mostly mm-hmm. like successful contractors, so they made enough money. But if I went to the casino four times in a year and I saw those guys there three times, you know, a little bit of induction says, "Oops, they're probably there every day." And yeah. Consider this. It seems impossible, but I typically played a one-two no-limit Texas Hold'em table, and my win rate was $185 an hour, which seems impossible. That's how soft the table was. Yeah, but that's that's an example of you having a big edge and also getting lucky. Like oh, there's no, no, there's no, no, no that, way that, that your actual edge was that high. Probably not, but it was big enough. But on the other hand, because they were so wild, I literally did see, fortunately I wasn't in the hand, and because I knew this one guy's behavior, that he always stayed with 7-2 unsuited, which for those of you who don't play Texas Hold'em, is the worst starting position. He just had this stupid superstition that he did. And the son of a bitch pulled a boat and beat a guy with a big flush it was oh. a gigantic stake and but i knew i, I didn't have a uh, didn't have a hand to play anyway but if i did I, if i say i had trips i would and i started to see these cards fall i go that's all bitch probably going to get the boat and you know get the hell out of there but you know even with me with a big 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 edge i could certainly go for an eight hour session and lose money without yeah. a doubt right yeah. because because again these guys played a very high variance game and partic- but fortunately it was tilted in the very 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 loose i mean i think it was an average of 5.5 guys after the flop you know uh, yeah. you know <laughs> you know there's a certain style of of play in some live games where the people are just there to get to to, to play their cards right the, the, for them the game of poker is we all get dealt cards and then some of us have like you get lucky and you get a good hand and it connects with the flop and then you win that pot and now it's now it's my turn because i got like now it's your turn cuz you got lucky and then occasionally you bluff they'll throw a bluff in there some of the times but mostly they're there to kind of just enjoy the the churn of numbers and to like feel the fluctuations of fate kind of like pass through the the, the game. And it's almost like it's a moral, uh, it, it's like a norm for them. It's okay, now it's your turn, now it's my turn. And if you and if you play the game in a more analytical way where you're trying to like find optimal moves and 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 kind of like maximize your chance of winning, it, it, it's almost like you're kind of disturbing this this uh, collective agreement. And and that is it's a little bit like playing network wars. Like it's a it's a guy recognizing that the, the opponents in network wars are following a set of rules that you don't have to follow, right? And that because they're constrained to those rules and their behavior is completely determined by them, you have this huge advantage because yours isn't, right? You don't have to sit around waiting until you get lucky. Right. You can make your own luck. And as a uh, kind of a really hardcore materialist, I don't believe in luck. Right. But those guys clearly do. Right. They clearly sense that they can feel the force and they can't, uh, I would say. You know, it's funny because you don't believe in luck, Jim, but you made a little toy universe that has luck in it because you predetermined this seed, which 
all of the random roles in in Network Wars are actually predetermined by the, this this deity which exists outside of the game, which is you. We you live in a, it, yeah, yeah, we live in a Presbyterian universe, as it turns out, right? Uh, and, <laughs> and you have access to this information, right? The poor bots are just like struggling to keep afloat, whereas you could just look at the code and say, "Here's what's going to happen." You really you you've given yourself these superpowers. All right, let's let's move back to the topic you brought up, which is the idea of live network wars, five human players. Yeah, okay. Uh, one, one of my biggest fans, and one of the, he was all the way from my Windows days as a volunteer tester. Uh, he's played an embarrassing number of times. Uh, he keeps lobbying for me to do the five live players, but I I don't, I don't know if the game would even make any sense with five players. But because you, you did hit on a, a key 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 distinction is. Is there communications or not between the players? If there's communications between the players, it's a totally different game than if there's not. Uh, one of the games I used to play when I was a teenager, we used to, we, we uh, was Diplomacy. Did you ever play Diplomacy? Right. Absolutely. Or we stabbing them in the back. But we, uh, in, when we were about nineteen, we got together a couple of times in the summer. And we were all home from college and played. I thought the ultimate uh, version of Diplomacy, which was we had a twenty dollar buy in, which back in the days of the minimum wage. Was a buck sixty, and both of us were working yeah. for a buck sixty with significant money. And we made made the rule that cash bribes were legal, but they had to be recorded with the uh, referee. And the winner of the game was not the person that took over the map. And we had a rule for allocating the twenty dollar buy in pot based on the rules of diplomacy. You know, if you have a four person coalition, you divide the pot evenly, all that stuff. So, but the meta winner was the person that got the most money, whether they won or lost the game of diplomacy because they were able to suck people into paying them bribes to either augment their part of a winning coalition or to win more money than anybody in a winning coalition might have via soliciting bribes. And I put that idea back to my friend who said, that would be quite brilliant if you could figure out how to gamify that, where you'd have open communications pipelines, allow cash bribes, you know, require a cash buy-in. And then the real, real winner is the person that collected the bribes, you know, plus whatever they want as being part of a winning coalition if they were part of one. Yeah. That would be one way. The other way would be, and, you know, this is the war that the poker rooms have. Uh, I have never played online poker for money, not even once, because I'm so aware of what leverage even a small amount of collusion provides. And of course, they spend vast sums trying to detect any signs of collusion, but I would say they can't possibly totally stop it. And so if I were going to do a zero interaction version of Network Wars, I would have to, I would want to do it with some pretty rigid anonymity features and make it very difficult and have to have a large enough number of games going on that it becomes impractical for people to collude. And of course, unlike right. a poker table where each game would be fresh, you could mix and match the users together when they're ready to play. Uh, any thoughts on th those distinctions between uh, the attempt to make it a isolated, no communications, uh, a communications like diplomacy, or yeah. uh, even crazier, a meta game where cash bribes are actually part of the game and part of the strategy? Yeah, no, I think it's 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 a fascinating question. I mean, I think the first thing that would that you have to acknowledge is that. It, it would be a totally new game, right? Because like I said, it looks like Network Wars is a strategy game that you are playing against a bunch of opponents and the other opponents just happen to be AI. But then you quickly realize, no, it's not really a strategy game. It's it's mostly like a puzzle. It's like a, it's like a Rubik's Cube. And it looks like a strategy game with opponents, but really it's kind of a Rubik's Cube because these opponents are just, you know, rules inside the game. And it, it, this is the sense in which, you know, 
the John von Neumann would say it's, it's not a game at all. But, that, that he doesn't think of chess as a game. Like for, for von Neumann, games are things like poker that involve modeling your opponents and making decisions based on what you think your opponents are going to do. And chess is just a puzzle, right? Um, it's just a big math problem. Uh, whereas poker, now that's that's a game. So it would really, you're, you're talking about making a new game, which kind of like uses the, the same underlying mechanics, but would quickly, I think, be overwhelmed by these kinds of issues of of coordination, collusion, what we call politics in game right. design in general. Anytime there, there are opportunities for people to work together and, and steer kind of the outcomes by colluding in some way, either explicitly or implicitly, that's politics, right? So quickly, it would just become a game about politics. And in terms of whether or not you allow communication, I think that's huge, obviously. But it's not, I don't think, I don't think it's it would be that different because ultimately, even if you don't allow communication, there is your actions in the game are a form of communication, right? So for example, if I'm if I want to punish someone because I think that they've made a move that is unfair or it's, it's a move I, I don't like, there are ways I can attack them that are just that are that are demonstrating punishment. I'm like, okay, I could take you over here, but I'm not. I'm gonna attack this one node and I'm gonna leave it there as a warning shot, you know what I mean? So people would find ways to communicate within the actions that you can take within the game. And there would be these elaborate kind of norms, I think, that evolved for communicating and kind of keeping people in check. And I think a lot would depend on whether I'm playing multiple sessions with the same people over and over again. If we sit down, then it gets interesting. I would definitely be interested in that. I would like it to be Again, short sessions so that, you know, there is some timer. I think you'd need to introduce a, a timer to, to keep these things moving. And then I think it would be interesting to see how that evolved. And I love the idea of doing it with money. <laughs> so <laughs> I actually think that there's something that happens when you introduce betting that often elevates a game because it encourages people to think not only what is the optimal move in this situation, but to think abstractly, how strong is that move? Like to understand the, the whole range of possibilities. Like if you think about the doubling cube in Backgammon, right? Backgammon, one of the oldest games on the planet that is still currently played for fun, right? Thousands of years old. People have been playing Backgammon forever. The doubling cube, which many people think as the, the, the thing that really makes Backgammon a masterpiece is this ability to like, decide at a certain point, okay, I'm so strong in this position that I can offer you double, you know, double stakes and you can either have to accept that or not. And all of a sudden now we're like thinking about in this meta terms about how the game is going to play out. The doubling cube was just invented like a hundred years ago, like, like, like early 20th century and the lower East side, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, I love that. that. I did not know that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, like that, it, what it did for the game. Um, and another example of this is, is contract bridge. Right. The difference between playing playing bridge, uh, playing whist, playing bridge, just trying to like find the best moves versus when you have bidding that allows you to kind of like to, to make predictions about what's going to happen in the overall game. And the real skill is in this ability to kind of like model what's going to happen. And f send false signals. Obviously, that's a exactly, huge part of contract. Exactly. Now you're opening up this whole channel for communication. You're giving moves 
extra meaning um, because they now are referring back to this larger system of, of what your, mm. your prediction about the overall game is going to be. And so, so I think that there's something really interesting about human network wars with cash. That's the version of it that I would, that I would be most interested in playing. Unfortunately, damn hard to do in the United States due to the sons of guns and their, and their regulations against gambling. I have to put it on the Isle of man or something or, like that. Or mint a coin. Yeah, yeah, is that yeah. is that how the is that yeah. how crypto works? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, we could possibly do that. It's possible. So I'm going to go back and think again about multiplayer network wars. Maybe it's not as hopeless as I think, and I'll have to explore the design space in a larger way, including how how I think about signaling and implicit politics or explicit politics, etc. You know, I have a list of like 20 enhancements for Network Wars 2.0, but none of them have anything to do with the core game itself. They're all about leaderboards and ELO ratings and things of that sort. Actually, I have one called the Advanced Duplicate Tournament. They take off the idea of duplicate bridge ranks. You know, people work their way up by, you know, if you win 20 games in a row, you become a lieutenant colonel or something, right? But nothing in the game itself. Zero. I'm actually quite happy with the game as it is in terms of a single player game. Is there any ideas that you had as the king of games uh, when you were playing this thing that you would do differently that might make it a better game? No, I think you're 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 thinking along the, exactly the right lines. You know, this uh, first of all, I think the um, the domain of metagame design is I- itself really fun and fascinating, and a place where a lot of people don't don't innovate. Right? They're they're not thinking about how to take an existing game or existing set of mechanics and find the right context for it, frame it in the right way, think about the kind of long-term experience. Unfortunately, we have the kind of business of, of games, especially the business of mobile games, is a real cesspool. And it, and it just, it's dragged, it drags, there's a in strong incentive that's kind of drags games down into uh, this kind of uh, Vegas-style approach where you're just trying to maximize time on device. Because of the, the, with the way the the revenue generation works, ad based revenue, which I hate. Which- yeah, and it, if you're just trying to entrap people and maximize time on device and get them to play as much as possible, that is something that is is counter to discovering the kind of really genuinely rich and interesting and cool kinds of context that you could make. I've often thought that Las Vegas. I mean, I, I love Las Vegas. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I like gambling. I think it's fun. And, and, I, and, but I, but I also recognize the, uh, the way it kind of degrades certain kinds of experiences. It kind of like drags them down to, to this kind of simplistic and, and, and rote kind of dynamics. And I think that, that it's an, it's an unexplored terrain an unexplored design terrain, like smart, interesting gambling games. Right, like uh, games that that combine randomness and 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 fluctuation and variance and gambling and and betting and wagering with strategy and calculation and social interesting social interaction. I mean, imagine if the lottery was like an interesting puzzle that people could. Do. And it, in a sense, it is right because people, you know, like. Uh, People can sometimes discover that there's an edge in the lottery that people have overlooked and that they find certain techniques or certain ways. But imagine designing games like that that would encourage people and incentivize people to to be creative and and to like to, to like think about the thing not just as, you know, am I going to get touched by the by the hand of God and be the lucky one, be the chosen one, 
but also can I apply myself to, to figure out what's going on here and improve my chances? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, large-scale emergent gambling that has the idea of gradually uncovering heuristics. Yeah. Like imagine if you and your friends could go to Vegas and there was a table game that you could play where you were actually like collaborating and working together and making decisions the same way you would if you were, you know, on a on a League of Legends team where it's like, okay, your your role is to do this and my role is to do this. I mean, that's what it's like when you when you're part of a card counting group. But I'm talking about something that's explicitly designed to allow for that and encourage that. I mean, it's a hard design problem, but it's not impossible. That's interesting. Now, now, God damn it, now you put another worm in my head, right? (laughs) I'll definitely be thinking about this. All right, well, we've talked a bunch about Network Wars. It's been a wonderful conversation. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about Network Wars quite this long. I do have one guy who I talk to about like this. In the last 10 minutes, why don't you back up a little bit and tell us a little bit about your thinking about games in general, and particularly maybe some of the ideas that you're going to be putting in your new book the beauty of games or, or otherwise, you know, what is the Frank Lance big picture about games? You've, you've certainly alluded to bits and pieces of it, but let's see if you could give us, you know, a few minutes, 10 minutes, maybe worth of, you know, straight from, straight from the dude himself. Okay. Well, before we, before we move off of network words, there's, there's one more thing I want to say about it. Okay. uh, Which is that a, a year ago I had a really bad year. My wife had some health issues and she's fine now. So everything's good. But it was like a really, really, really bad year. The kind of the kind of stuff that, that you're in the hospital, you're going through surgeries, you're going through treatments. And it was really rough. And I played a lot of Network Wars during that time. And it kind of kept me sane. And I think there is a there is a quality of games that they can do that for people. And and it's a I think it's it's a real it's a real value of games, and I think it's sometimes looked down on. We think of it as like oh, escapism, you know, this ability of games to to sort of absorb our attention and to kind of expand in our heads to to such a degree that they kind of crowd out our own you know thoughts and and feelings. And I think there can be great beauty in that. And and I think that the fact that a game can be a source of comfort in addition to being a source of ideas and, and intellectual exploration, that sometimes, you know, games can be a thing where you're standing in a dark place and you need to have a little warmth and a little light and, 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 and games can be that source. I, I, I made a game called Drop 7 that I think a lot of people have this relationship, this kind of relationship to. It's a very abstract game. It's similar to Network Wars in some ways, in the sense that it's a minimalist game. It's very abstract, it's a little puzzle game. And a friend of mine once said that he was on an airplane, and this airplane hit some very bad turbulence, the kind that you're not sure if you're going to make it, right? And this was really, really bad. He, he looked over, and the woman sitting next to him was clearly very upset, very scared. And she was playing drop seven. And I, that made me really happy when he told me the story. It, it, it made me, it made me very proud that at this moment, at this dark moment, standing on, on, you know, on the precipice, looking into the, into the void that, that this woman turned to this, this game that I had made and, and found some comfort there that made me really proud. And, and your game did that for me. Well, I'm really, I'm really pleased to hear that. Really, that really warms my heart because, you know, I, you know, I, I knew it would be 
a game people would enjoy, you know, and it, you know, it's a, a pastime that is nonetheless kind of good for heightening your cognition. So I don't feel terrible about sucking people into it. And I'm, exactly. but I'm also glad I, I deliver the, this kind of experience that I really didn't even think about. So thank you yeah. for telling me about that. I really yeah, made well, my thank, day. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I needed it and, and, and it was there for me. So I, I appreciate that. I, I think, and, and yeah, I mean, my, my overall, uh, you know, I, I wrote this book, I've been teaching game design for a long time. I love games. I love thinking about games. I love playing games. And I also think that games are are kind of deeply confusing. I think a lot of people who don't, who aren't inside of the world of games, who don't play a lot of games, I think they look at games and there's something, they realize there's something going on there. It's kind of interesting. It has something to do with computers. There's a lot of people doing it, but it also seems very confusing. Like, what what is it? Like, what are these things? Are they just like, are they hedonistic appliances that you kind of plug into the wall and then they, they take you to a dream world and you get to imagine that you're a fireman or, you know, a dragon or whatever. And I, I want with, with my book, I want to share my way of looking at games and thinking about what makes them interesting and beautiful and meaningful and important. And I think it, it really starts from the idea that they are something like music or literature or film, that they're they're a creative form. There's something we do for their own sake that we we do because we find them interesting and meaningful and 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 beautiful and expressive, but in a very particular way. Like the the the, the unlike any other art form, games have have so much engineering in them, right? There's so much about problem solving. That they really are the art form of problem solving, right? They are the art form of, of interactivity. They have this, this deep relationship to computers. Like games predate computers, obviously. Games have been around since before the dawn of civilization. And but I think in some ways they I think some in some ways games invented computers. You know what I mean? Games were were doing computation before computers existed, right? Games were one of the inspirations for computers. Yeah, we we know for sure that that gambling motivated Pascal Absolutely. to understand probability for sure, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, I think looking at at the um, at, at the Mechanical Turk was was uh, supposedly one of the things that inspired Babbage to you know to 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 work on the the analytical engine. And and Turing, like the, one of the first things he he did was write a, a chess program, right? Before he had invented the idea of computers, he was like, well, here's how you would like write a chess playing program, right? So this idea of kind of algorithmic thinking of of, of kind of the rules based behavior kind of kind of exists in games. And when games when when computers finally came around, I think the the intersection of games and computers obviously like brought about this huge explosion. Of of creativity and 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 kind of led to the to the the world we we live in now, where where digital games, video games, and computer games are you know arguably one of one of the most complex, interesting, important forms of of culture that's 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 on the planet. But I still think kind of poorly understood, right? Like it's there's a sense in which they they are um, so complex and hard to kind of like wrap your head around. That that kind of building this shared literacy that that is an important part of of having them continue to kind of evolve and and grow and and fulfill their their capacity 
I think is 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 the project that I want to be a part of. Right, is one of the, the the reasons that I you know was drawn into teaching games and 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 game design and and helping develop the the, the program at NYU. And and I just so so that's you know that's essentially the kind of what the what the overall project of the book is. It's it's about trying to understand like how to think about games within this this larger context of them as a form of culture, right? That have the same kind of expressive power that these other these other creative forms have, um, but their own unique version of it that has to do with with problem solving and and logic and 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 rules and all of these things that we think of as in some ways as being the opposite of creativity, right? We think of creativity as being about spontaneous uh, kind of emotional responses, intuitive responses, and and then we think of of games about being these kind of deterministic things where the rules kind of like create this limited set of of possible behaviors and you're trying to extrapolate from that. But the reality is that that is I think the thing that gives games as a form of culture, their angle on the contemporary world that is unlike any other form of culture. I think that they have a power to like help us understand the world we live in, ourselves, each other, in a way that no that that is just like profound and 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 meaningful and beautiful. And it is it is this contrast, I think, that, that between the, you know, between kind of logic and reason, kind of instrumental reason, the things that we apply ourselves to when we're trying to solve a problem, and the things that we 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 find kind of irreducibly complex and beautiful about art, right? The things that that art is by its nature, it's kind of always eludes our attempts to explain it and to like and to, to, to like form an objective kind of explanation about how it works and what it's for. It's it, because it, it exists a little bit outside of the ordinary course of events where we're where we're explaining things and and putting values on things and determining. And so it is in this this combination, I think that 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 games have their they kind of open up a window on the world that is yeah truly special and different and and that's kind of what the book is is exploring. Sounds fascinating as can be. Let's definitely have you back on the show when it comes out, and we'll go into the book in great detail. Because as I mentioned, I've been playing games and designing games, playing games since I strategy games since I was ten, and designing them from the time I was twelve. Not that I've ever made a living at it, but I'm sure we can have a great conversation. I really look forward to it. And uh, as we as we sign off here, people who want to play Network Wars, NetworkWars.com will provide you links to the Apple App Store and to Google Play. You can search there for Network Wars, two words, download the app, 99 cents, and you can have as much fun as Frank and I have had playing this game and having this wonderful conversation today, Frank. It's really been great. Well, thank you very much, Jim. I've enjoyed it. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.